So you'll want to keep Galatians 4 open in front of you. The, the, the last session was the gentle warm-up. Um, so now we're going to do something a bit more substantial. When I preached my first sermon, I think 21 years ago, Vaughan Roberts listened to it. He sent me out to a church in the countryside to do the damage I was going to do. Um, and then it was tape recorded, and he listened to the tape recording and he suggested not only was it a bad idea to have 13 points in a sermon, but, but also that I should not, in fact, never again begin a sermon by telling the congregation that the text before them was very hard to understand. I've avoided doing it for 21 years, but today I indulge myself. <laughs> we have before us a passage that is indeed difficult to understand uh, when Flavien was taken ill last Monday and I decided the only course of action was for me to do a paper, I thought, I've got half a lecture on Romans 9 in the drawer that I could beef up. Uh, but it will be a much more exciting week to try to tackle Galatians 4. Because I do think it is more difficult than Romans 9, or even Romans 9 to 11. There's a very good article on this uh, section by Karen Jobes, who says that Paul performs a hermeneutical tour de force unequaled in the New Testament. And I think she's right. However, for many, Galatians 4 is the most egregious example of Paul's bad exegetical habits. For them, his interpretation imposes an alien meaning on the Old Testament texts of Genesis and Exodus. The passage is therefore a knockdown proof for why we cannot read the Old Testament in the way that Paul did, and the unbelieving scholar's version of that is that we cannot read the Old Testament that way because Paul quite simply got it totally wrong. The problem with that is obvious. The baptised version of that argument is that Paul was an apostle, so he could do it, but we can't. <laughs> Those of you who are laughing are the ones who disagree with that view. Those of you who are keeping quiet, hold to it. <laughs> Such of you recognises the inspiration of the text... The allegory is the census plenial, the fuller meaning of this Old Testament text under the guidance of the Spirit. But this view thinks that that kind of exegesis is simply unrepeatable. Longenecker, for example. Christians today are committed to the apostolic faith and doctrine of the New Testament, but not necessarily to the apostolic exegetical practices as detailed for us in the New Testament. Just ponder that for a moment. I'm now going to restate that view, you might think cheekily, in other words. The apostles, called and appointed and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in their inspired and inerrant writings, read the Old Testament like this. I am not going to follow their example. You're not laughing now. 
The other reason why this passage is so difficult, apart from those interpretive questions, is because it's also part of Paul's teaching on the law in Galatians, which is the focus of so much debate, even among pretty like-minded, reformed, Bible-believing Christians. So I think if we can make some progress this afternoon with this passage, we'll be making progress in both developing a biblically-based hermeneutic and in understanding Paul's negative comments on the Sinai Covenant. So I want to try to show two things, two aims for this paper. First, that apostolic exegesis of the Old Testament is indeed brilliantly fertile, but is also demonstrably faithful to the Old Testament text when it is read intertextually, which term I will explain a little bit now and more later. By intertextually, I mean in a way that traces the connections between different passages within the Old Testament. In other words, often the validity of Paul's reading of the Old Testament can't be demonstrated by going to the single text that he quotes. Rather, we must scrutinise the web of relationships in which that single text already exists in the Old Testament to understand why Paul quotes it the way he does and says that it means what he thinks it means. Now, intertextuality is actually very fashionable in biblical scholarship. Let's give thanks to God that biblical scholarship, broadly speaking, is so much better than it was 50 years ago. There's a whole lot more good stuff out there than there was 50 years ago, even, even 30 years ago. At this point, I think this emphasis on intertextuality lines up very well with that most Protestant of maxims that scripture must be explained from scripture. That's what it's doing. So that's the first thing I want to try to show, that the apostolic exegesis of the Old Testament, at least in this example, um, is, yes, brilliantly fertile, but demonstrably faithful when we appreciate the significance of an intertextual reading of those passages that are used by the apostles. Second thing is this, that Paul's negative comments, if I can call them that, on the Sinai Covenant must be read redemptive historically in the light of and as comments on what that covenant given then became in the history of Israel for Israel. In other words, the things he says are not statements about necessarily what that covenant was when it was given, but are statements about the effect it had in the history of Israel as it unfolds in the Old Testament. Okay, let's begin to look at this passage. And you know the first thing that jumps out at us? What's the first thing that jumps out at us? It's this word allegory, isn't it? That's what we all notice immediately. Uh, he says in verse 24, he's reading allegorically, and we all go, oh no, you can't do that. And we think that because we've been trained to think that allegory is a really bad thing practiced only by naughty Alexandrians, and if you will pardon the expression, the exegetically incontinent. But Richard Hayes is surely right to observe that nobody should be surprised that Paul says he's reading the passage allegorically because allegorical exegesis was everywhere in Palestine because not all allegorical exegesis was Alexandrian. In his book on origin, R.P.C. Hansen points out the difference between Alexandrian allegory and Palestinian rabbinic allegory. 
For the Alexandrians, very, very often, and this, this is on the surface of what they write, they say it's an allegory because they can't stomach the literal sense. Yes, the Canaanites being killed, it, it can't be true. It must be that they stand for your sins and you must slay them. So first of all, they do it because they can't stomach the literal sense. And then secondly, they do it because they just love finding moralistic readings of the Old Testament. So they just want to moralise everything because some of them have a kind of worksy religion. Palestinian allegory was not like that. Hansen comments that Paul is essentially more inclined to typological readings, but he uses allegory as an aid to his typology, which I think is the right way of viewing it. So Richard Hayes comments that um, allegoro need mean no more in Paul's vocabulary than saying that the Old Testament text is not to be taken simply at face value. There's more to it than that. It doesn't mean he's buying into some great system of Alexandrian allegorization. My point here is just don't be mesmerised by the terminology. Let's think instead about the substance of the passage. Now, Paul's opening question shows the purpose of this passage, doesn't it? It's a wonderful example of different ways in which he uses nomos, law. He's going to use material from the law against those who want to be under the law. And he brings before them the story of Abraham's family. Sarah, Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael. I'm going to use the names Abraham and Sarah because I won't be able to keep track of which, when it changes, although in Genesis 16 they're still in the previous names. But I'm going to do what Paul does here because he calls him that here. So we'll, we'll just do that for the sake of convenience. Now what he does through the passage, and I've tried to lay this out on the handout, is to distinguish two opposing categories. Two sons, the son of the slave woman, son of the free woman. One born, um, was that the NIV you read, John? Was it? Yes, one born, um, that was the one point at which I'm going to be uneasy about the NIV, I think, not according to the ordinary manner, but according to the flesh. I take it that this is a significant description, as we'll see later, and we'll come back to that later. The other born through promise. The two women equal two covenants. Hagar is Mount Sinai. There's a a silence on the right-hand side here. He doesn't say anything about Sarah at this point. Hagar is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. The present Jerusalem is in slavery. But the Jerusalem above, by contrast, is free. She is our mother. Quote from Isaiah uh, 54.1. Barren one must rejoice in having more children. You are like Isaac, children of promise. Isaac was born catapneuma, according to the spirit, not the flesh. Um, It is persecuted by those born um, of the flesh. Uh, So too now, that's happening here and now, he says. So Genesis 21.10, cast out the slave woman and the son, because the son of the slave will not inherit. We're the children of the free woman, not of the slave. So you can see how I've tried to put them into those two categories there. Now, as we look through those categories Two questions, I think, arise, at least in my mind, and I guess in most people's minds. First of all, what are the grounds for connecting together the different things from the Old Testament with each other? What are the grounds for connecting together Hagar and Sinai? Big question. But then a further question is, what are the grounds for connecting those Old Testament things to the realities that Paul has in front of him here today in the church? he's equating a bunch of Old Testament stuff together and then he's equating that with stuff going on here and now and it's puzzling at both stages many commentators 
uh, will give us the answer that there are no grounds. Fung, in the New International Commentary on the New Testament, says that Paul's use of Hagar and Sarah, in this he is not expounding the meaning of the Old Testament passage as intended by the original writer. I wonder which original writer he has in mind. And I'm not asking which human being wrote the Pentateuch. Because it's, it's interesting how quickly commentators tell us about the, what was in the mind of the original writer. Um, and the assumption is that it's the human writer. What about the divine writer? Did he know? Um, another writer, Sherps, thinks the passage is an utter violation of the basic rule of rabbinical hermeneutics, which states that, quote, no word of scripture must ever lose its original sense. Longnecker follows Barrett's argument, which is that Paul only indulges in this allegory because his opponents have already done it, and he has to wrest it back from them. It was evoked, Barrett says, not by a personal love of fantastic exegesis, hmm, nothing uh, pejorative about that description, is there, but by a reasoned case which it was necessary that he should answer. Now, I think actually you can quite happily grant that Paul may well be addressing a use of this passage that's already been made by his opponents. There's some evidence in the book of Jubilees that the Isaac and Ishmael story was used to exclude Gentiles from the people of God. That's fine. You don't have to conclude because you think his opponents were doing it that his reading doesn't have any basis in the Old Testament. So I like what Richard Hayes says. He thinks that Paul, um, in using the allegory against his opponents, who he thinks have probably already used it, is practicing hermeneutical jujitsu. He flips the story on its back against his opponents. That was a good way of putting it, I thought. So I think you can say that without saying that he is therefore misinterpreting, even if he is engaged in hand-to-hand combat with his opponents. So here's our question then. Is there, within the Old Testament texts themselves, any basis for the way that Paul uses them here? There is. And here I acknowledge I'm following a case made by Matthew Emerson in an article He says that Paul's reading is grounded in the intentionality of the text of the Pentateuch narratives. It was really there in the text originally. Now, the basic contrast between Sarah, Hagar, Isaac, Ishmael is, of course, clearly intended in Genesis. And I take it I don't need to unpack that at any length other than to point out who gets the promise in Genesis 17. So obviously there's a basic contrast there waiting in Genesis More surprising is this connection of Hagar to Sinai. That's the weird bit. And here then, we need to draw on these concepts of intertextuality and also intratextuality. Intertextuality is normally used for connections between books of the Old Testament. Intratextuality for connections within the same book between different passages. So now imagine that passage A in the Old Testament is already related in the Old Testament to passages B, C, and D. Maybe A is a later passage or a passage by the same author, so you know he could have had the other things in his human mind. If the New Testament quotes passage A, the point is this. It may well do so actually because of those connections that exist to passages B, C, and D elsewhere in the Old Testament. And to understand why the New Testament quotes passage A in the way it does, we may have to be aware of those connections. If we don't know about those connections, we may, in our magnificent omniscience, 
conclude that they actually weren't there and Paul just got it totally wrong. It is as if when he quotes passage A, a New Testament writer takes us into a cave. Imagine you're sitting in a cave and he leads you into the cave by quoting passage A. But this is a cave which echoes with passages B and C and D, the sounds of them ringing around. And we need to enter that cave and listen for those echoes. We need to look for what Job's calls the unstated points of resonance. Okay, all of those echoes. Now, there is a label for this, and I debated with my children whether I should use the term or not, um, but they think long words are a good thing. So this is metalepsis. That's the technical term for it, or transumption. Okay? So what we're doing is we're looking for the transumed echoes. These are the echoes that aren't there in Paul's single quotation, but are there when you understand that that quotation already has connections elsewhere. Then, suddenly, the echoes come loudly to you. There you go, I did it. Now, what we need to do then is, in a metaphor used by another writer, we need to enter the intertextual and intratextual space to listen carefully. It's almost as if it's a web. I'm making this up on the spot. But imagine a spider's web, and there's a, there's a thread leading to the, a point on the web. And we, we walk along this thread. This is, the quote, this is the actual explicit quotation. We walk along it, but then we, we land ourselves in a web, and suddenly we've got all these connections going out to other passages. So apply that model to Galatians 4. The question becomes this. Do we in the Old Testament already hear echoes that justify connecting Hagar and Sinai? And Emerson traces several parallels between the Hagar story and the Exodus narrative. Both Hagar and the Hebrews flee. Genesis 16, 6, 8, Exodus 14, 5. Same verb. Both flee towards Shur, Genesis 16, 7, Exodus 15, 22. Sarah tells Abraham to cast out Hagar. Pharaoh casts out the Hebrews. Same verb, Genesis 21, 10, Exodus 10, 11. In the wilderness, Hagar and the Hebrews receive promises from God. The angel of the Lord tells Hagar to go and submit to Sarah, 16.9, using the same verb the Lord uses in Genesis 15.13 of the oppression of the Hebrews that lies ahead in Egypt. In other words, there are all sorts of narrative allusions between Hagar and the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. So that Paul is not arbitrarily connecting Hagar to the Sinai covenant. The parallels were already there. There is a clear intertextual basis, for this stage at least, of Paul's allegory. So far, so good. You, I don't want to presume, but you may say, so far, so good. But here I want to diverge from Emerson, because Emerson now does something with this evidence. Uh, when he draws a theological conclusion about the nature of the Sinai covenant itself. He says, well, the Hagar covenant, the covenant that God made with Hagar, was not a salvation covenant. It was a temporal covenant. So, therefore, because of the parallel between Hagar and Sinai, the Sinai covenant was not a salvation covenant either. It was a covenant concerned only with temporal stuff, like the land. 
only for physical protection and not eternally salvific, he concludes. This, he thinks, in fact, is the crux of the point Paul is making in Galatians 4, 21 to 31. So do you see what Emerson is doing with this intertextuality? Various stages of his argument, I'm agreeing with half of it. First of all, he says, here I agree with him, the legitimacy of this part of Paul's allegory is clear because there are in the text of Genesis and Exodus echoes that connect Hagar to Sinai. Good, helpful point. Second, and here I demur, the common character of the Hagar and Sinai covenants as physical and non-saving is demonstrated because they have these connections. To put it in the language of conventional covenant theology, Emerson is denying that Sinai was an administration of the covenant of grace. He's arguing it was simply a temporal covenant. In my judgment, he is right to observe the Hagar-Sinai connection, but wrong to think that we should conclude from it, or that Paul wants us to conclude from it, that Sinai was a temporal covenant. The point of the parallel is not the mere physicality or temporality of the Sinai covenant. Paul's point is rather, I'm going to argue, that Sinai has become for Israel in her history a covenant of bondage comparable to the slave status of Hagar and Ishmael. Let me repeat that. Sinai has become in the history of Israel a covenant of bondage comparable the status of Hagar and Ishmael. Why? Not because it was a covenant promising merely physical blessings. It wasn't that. We'd have to go elsewhere to argue this, but I would argue that Sinai was a covenant that held forth Christ and life to the Israelites under its types. But it became a covenant of bondage in the history of Israel because of her sin and because it was never accompanied by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would have enabled her to repent and believe the gospel that Sinai held forth to her. That, I think, is Paul's point in passages like 2 Corinthians 3 to 4. Uh, If you want more on that, the next Doctrine Study Day, which starts in Bradford-on-Avon next week, um, is going to begin with a long section on 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. I think this is hinted at in our passage in verse 29 when we find Isaac being described as one born according to the spirit. That's the contrast. Without the spirit in the heart, the Sinai covenant could produce only slave children even though it was a covenant about eternal salvific realities and even though it offered Christ... That was not because it was concerned only with physical benefits or temporal benefits. I'm not sure what Paul would make of the idea that the Sinai covenant was concerned only with physical temporal things. I suspect he might think it's reminiscent of his dualistic opponents who dismissed marriage in 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. They are trying to disenchant Sinai. Sinai cannot be disenchanted any more than you can purge the earth of God's grandeur. I'm thinking of an extraordinary poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. God's grandeur. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. If I may be permitted to quote a Roman Catholic poet in order to defend a reading of the Sinai Covenant. 
um, in a Protestant I think I'll just stop there and move on. Um, <laughs> the point is that you can't get salvation out of Sinai. Christ is written into it. And this idea that it's purely a temporal covenant seems to me to be a very, very strange reading of it when it's woven with types of Christ. But am I merely asserting, you may say, does the swirl of texts which we're concerned with in Genesis and Exodus, and Isaiah, I'll come to that in a minute, in any way suggest that the problem with Sinai in Paul's mind, not Williams's mind, but in Paul's mind, was its historical effect on Israel rather than its original mere physicality and mere temporality. Would it be helpful for me to pause and restate that so you know where I am in my argument? Okay. Emerson says, what Paul's telling us is that Sinai, like Hagar, is a temporal physical covenant about that kind of stuff. I'm saying, no, that's not what he's telling us. It's a covenant about eternal realities. Paul is interested in what it became in Israel without the Holy Spirit and how it became a covenant of bondage in the history of Israel. And now we're asking, okay, but am I just asserting that? Or is there actually anything in the text of Galatians to suggest that Paul is interested in what this covenant became in the history of Israel rather than in categorizing it as a temporal covenant at its origin? So what I've got to try to show to argue against Emerson at this point is that Paul is very, very interested in the history of Israel and that his interest really is in redemptive history and what Sinai looked like in the rest of Israel's history after it and the effect it had on her, which was an enslaving effect because the spirit wasn't poured out. Okay? So here's some of the evidence for that. First of all, just a reason to hesitate. There's good reason to think that the Hagar and Sinai covenants are actually opposite in some quite significant ways. So in other words, you can't just say, well, whatever the Hagar covenant is like, the Sinai covenant's like that. Because although Paul compares them, there are also some obvious dissimilarities. For instance, the Hebrews flee from submission to Egyptians to Sinai. Hagar is an Egyptian being driven out by Hebrews. It's the opposite pattern. Hagar is fleeing from the promised land. That's clear where we are in 16.1. Towards Shur, which is just east of Egypt, presumably heading home. The Hebrews are fleeing in the precise opposite direction to the promised land from Egypt. So there's some important differences there that stop us just thinking everything one is, the other is. Secondly, the true parallel that Paul traces is not between the physical character of the two covenants, but between the sin of Abraham in the Hagar episode and the sin of Israel in her history. Now, let me try to prove this. And actually, Emerson helps us here with some other intertextual parallels that he explores. Because he shows how the Hagar episode is sketched out in terms that remind us of the fall of Adam and Eve. Generic similarities, aren't there? The husband-wife scenario. But they are sharpened even by the vocabulary that's used. Genesis 3.17 and 16.2, parallel expressions are used for Adam and Abraham listening to their wives, telling them to take something, using the same verb for hearing and the same noun for voice. In 3.6, Eve takes the fruit, gives it to Adam. 16.3, Sarah took Hagar, gave her to Abraham. Same terms again. 
When Sarah tells Abraham to cast Hagar out, she uses the same verb that describes Adam and Eve being cast out of Eden, and as I mentioned earlier, Cain being cast out of his land. Even when Hagar curses Sarah in 16.4, she's aligning herself with those who curse Abraham and his family, foretold in Genesis 12.3, and that's an echo of 3.15 and the seed promise and that old antipathy between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So in a sense, she's lining herself up with Satan. We're evidently to view then what happens with Hagar as a small-scale recapitulation of the fall. Now, what characterises this fall with Hagar? This could be fun. Oh, good. (laughs) Um, What excellent timing. Um, Abraham and Sarah don't look to God to fulfil his promise, but try to force his hand by their own deed. They they try to accomplish the Lord's purposes in their own strength. This is why I said I think it's important that Ishmael is a son born according to the flesh, not according to ordinary generation or the ordinary means, katasaka in Galatians 4.23. Whereas Isaac, by contrast, is born through the promise. That is not a biological description, a contrast between natural and supernatural births. It is a figure for Ishmael springing from the realm of autosoteric human effort, DIY salvation. He's the child of the flesh. Well, we know what flesh means in Paul, don't we, here? Moo comments that the TNIV may catch, maybe we should have had the TNIV, the right idea with its translation of Katasaka as the result of human effort. Hmm. Much more helpful. So what's the picture? Abraham and Sarah are living in a good, salvific covenant given by God. Because of their unbelief, they decide to try to bring about the realisation of that covenant's promises by their own very human efforts. Here, surely, is the parallel with Israel living under Sinai. She has been given a good, salvific covenant that holds forth Christ to her. But she's tried to realise its promises by her own strength. I think one of Paul's most illuminating comments on the law is Romans 9.32. Israel pursued the law not by faith, but as if it were based on works. This, I don't think, is trying to abstract the commands from the covenant. I think she's trying to bring about the whole framework of the covenant by means of her own works. So Emerson, I think, rightly characterises Abraham's sin. He writes this. When Abraham attempts to use his own strength to bring about the Lord's promise, the result is ultimately cursing, slavery and wandering in the wilderness due to his own sin. Spot on. What I'm arguing is that that is what we are to infer is true of what Sinai has become in the history of Israel. When Israel attempts to use her own strength to bring about the Lord's promise, the result is ultimately cursing slavery and wandering in the wilderness due to her own sin. Thirdly, Paul does reference Sinai directly in this text. He says one covenant is from Mount Sinai, verse 24. But his focus is immediately on the after-effects of the Sinai Covenant, not on some quality of that covenant itself, its temporality or physicality. 
he does refer to the origin of the covenant at Sinai, but he immediately continues, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. In other words, he is interested straight away in the historical effect of this covenant. And that runs all the way through to how he connects it to his own day in verse 25. Hagar is Sinai, which is the present Jerusalem, who is in slavery with her children. In other words, from Sinai from the beginning, bearing children for slavery, right up to the present Jerusalem, enslaved. That's what Sinai has been in the history of Israel. Fourthly, I think the importance of the history of Israel is underscored by his quotation from Isaiah 54, verse 1, which is in verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labour, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, this is a passage in the context of Isaiah about Jerusalem, the city, um, which it is prophesied as being barren and then restored. Why does Paul connect it to Sarah, the other side of his, of his allegory from Hagar? Is that going too far? Is that a connection? We've, we've seen some evidence for the, the Hagar-Sinai connection. But why does he connect Jerusalem and Sarah here? Well, actually, again, we find the answer in the intertextuality, or intratextuality, in this case, within Isaiah. There's even a big pattern similarity, I think, between Galatians 3-4 and Isaiah 52-54. to This is pointed out by Job's. Isaiah 53-1, you remember, who has believed what he's heard from us? Galatians 3.2, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Who's believed what he heard? Hearing with faith. Then Isaiah 52.3, as we know, that depiction of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, Christ publicly portrayed as crucified before you. Then we come, Isaiah 54, after the servant song, the command to the barren to rejoice, quoted now by Paul in 427. So there's some broad similarities there. But is there anything to validate specifically connecting Sarah with Jerusalem? Well, Isaiah's already made the connection. Abraham and Sarah are both related in Isaiah to the eschatologically restored Jerusalem. 54.1, the barren woman who is to rejoice because she'll have so many children. Back in Isaiah 51, the only mention of Sarah by name outside of Genesis calls on those who pursue righteousness, well, there's a Pauline Galatian theme, pursuing righteousness, to look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So God encourages the people by reminding them of how God gave to Abraham and Sarah many children. The exact theme of the quotation in 54.1, the barren is going to have many children. So those two passages, 54.1 and 51, are connected, 51.1 and 2, are connected by this idea of childlessness, and that connects the Jerusalem of 54 to Abraham and Sarah in Isaiah 51, in a section in which there's already a big picture connection between the sequence of thought in Galatians 3.4 and the sequence of thought from Isaiah 52 to 54. Now, as soon as we do that, we begin to get our, 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 our spider's web is now sh huge and shimmering and all sorts of alarms <laughs> are going off, um, which fortunately they're not. But, um, because, because we know that, that Jerusalem is a huge theme in Isaiah, isn't it? 
Um, Alec Matir sums up the book as a tale of two cities. Um, we, have, we have many cities in the book, but we have certainly, um, from the beginning, an interest in the city. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. The city is mentioned by name 47 times in the book. But we get two Jerusalems, one ruined in the prophesied exile. Notice prophesied long in advance. One gloriously restored. So Job says, when Paul refers to the now Jerusalem in Galatians 4.24 and the above Jerusalem, he's echoing Isaiah's portrayal of two Jerusalems. And then all sorts of other things go off as well, because there are other connections too. So Isaiah 64.10, Jerusalem's become a desolation. In the Septuagint, it's a, it's a curse. Ace Cataran. Jerusalem's become a curse. Ah, Galatians 3.13, the curse. The Septuagint of Isaiah 1.26, the eschatological Jerusalem will be called City of Righteousness, Metropolis Pistadzion, the faithful mother city Zion. Really interesting because in Galatians 4.26, she is our mother. Isaiah also promises the spirit to the future Zion in 59.21. Galatians 4.29, one born according to the spirit. In other words, you can go on like this. I'm just sort of firing these things out at you because it just shows that this whole mesh of thought in Galatians is already there in Isaiah and the connections are there from Jerusalem to Sarah. The themes of childlessness are there. The theme of the spirit, the curse, the righteousness, the mother. It's all already there in Isaiah. But if you just ask the question, is Paul quoting Isaiah reliably when he quotes 54.1 and you went and looked at 54.1, do you think he's not? Because you wouldn't make all of those connections. Now, that's relevant to my argument here, just coming back to the argument. Paul is using material which is about the history of Israel when he does this. Yes, when he takes us into this web of illusions in Isaiah, he is going to material which concerns what Jerusalem has become in her history and what she will become in her exilic destruction and what she will ultimately be in her restoration. So remember what I'm trying to do at this point of the argument is to say, um, what am I trying to do? I've forgotten. Um, Okay, Uh, I'm I'm struggling to keep track of it myself here. That's not a great sign, is it? Um, Maybe you're all thinking it's obvious. Why are you being so dim? Um, What he's trying to do is he's trying trying to say... um, Israel is like what happened with Hagar. It's become a self-salvation project. And it's therefore ended in ruin. And so his interest is, and this is my point, his interest is in what Israel has become in the Sinai covenant in her history because of her disobedience. How she's become this ruined city depicted in Isaiah. How she's ended up in exile or is going to end up in exile. He's not making a qualitative comment about the Sinai covenant itself being a a works covenant or a temporal covenant or a physical covenant. He's saying this is what this covenant has looked like in the history of Israel. So his going to Isaiah 54 is significant. This is the point. It's significant because that's a passage about what Jerusalem's become and the terrible state she's in and the hope that she has. So let me conclude with two thoughts then. First of all, we cannot use Galatians 4, at least. I know there are other passages, but we can't use Galatians 4 to argue that Sinai was a works, temporal, physical covenant. We need to read Galatians 4 redemptive historically. 
The big point is that Pentecost was still to come. The Spirit had not been poured out. Sinai was an administration of the covenant of grace. It held forth the Lord Jesus Christ to believers. They believed the gospel by believing the Sinai covenant. They knew Christ under its types. But not many of them did. Only a remnant. Corporately speaking, the people were unregenerate and ended up cursed and in exile. Though there were faithful believers believing the gospel under the form of the Sinai covenant like a Daniel. What was yet to come was the great outpouring of the Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ when he became, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the life-giving Spirit. Pentecost would change everything, hence the contrast, the strong contrasts of Galatians. Not because Sinai was a different category of covenant as a works or temporal covenant, but because it was the gospel, but the gospel without the great outpouring of the Spirit on the nations that has now come that the Lord Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. Secondly, we should therefore preach the Old Testament as Paul did and understand it as Paul did, because what he found was really there. But is it not daunting to see how he finds it? To read it as he read it, we need to know it as he knew it. One of the writers, I can't remember who it was, but it may be Job's, asks the question, did he really expect the Galatians to understand all of this? And she has an interesting hypothesis, which is that Paul had taught them Isaiah when he was there. Huh. Well, who knows? But the letters don't come in isolation, do they? So, we end daunted, I think. I end daunted. It makes me think I need to go and look again at Isaiah, because I think so much of Paul is from Isaiah, isn't it? I must spend more time in Isaiah. And I want to take from Galatians 4 and from Paul's example a strong encouragement to the close reading of the scriptures. And so I ask you, will you delight to stand in that cave listening for all the beautiful sounds of its harmonious echoes?